The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that passage which we read just now in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the 14th chapter, from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read it all again, but it begins like this. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he speaks, you remember, two main parables. The one about a man intending to build a tower and who doesn't sit down first to count the cost. The second about a king going to make war against another king and who doesn't sit down first to consult whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. And then he sums it up by saying, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And then he ends by saying, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we've been looking during the last two Sunday nights at uh, this particular chapter because here our Lord deals with this great question, this great problem of why it is that men and women are not Christians, why they don't believe the gospel, why they're not followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That, I say, is surely the great problem that ought to be confronting us all. We see a world of trouble round and about us. We know our own personal troubles and problems. We've tried the remedies of the world. The statesmen are busy. The philosophers are pouring out their books. And this has gone on for centuries, for millennia. And yet the world is in as much trouble tonight as it has ever been. But here is an offer. Here is a message. Here is a gospel which if men and women but believed it and accepted it, could deal with all their problems. And yet they won't look at it. They turn away from it. They dismiss it. They despise it. Now that's the great question. As I say, it's been the standing question of all the centuries. Of course, we have it here in the pages of the four Gospels, pinpointed for us. It was exactly like that. When the Son of God came into this world and actually stood before men and women, they could look into the face of God, and still they cried away with him, crucify him. They rejected him. And this is the question. What is it that makes men and women do that? Well, now, in this chapter, in a very wonderful way, our Lord himself deals with that very question. And he deals with it in three main sections. We've already considered the first two. We saw in the first that men oftentimes reject him and his great salvation because they're so completely wrong in their estimate of themselves. Then we saw last Sunday night that others do it because they're so completely wrong in their estimate of his so great salvation. And here we come to yet a further reason this evening, and one perhaps which includes the other two in itself and sums up our Lord's entire teaching 
concerning this great and vital and all-important question. What is this? Well, what we have here is terrible, tragic uncertainty with regard to the true nature of the gospel and of our relationship to him. That is the subject with which our Lord deals in these verses that we are looking at together tonight. Now, this, uh, what we are looking at, uh, follows uh, by a kind of inevitable logical sequence upon what we were considering last Sunday night. You see, there our Lord, you remember, was dealing with those people at that feast who were making that easy assumption that they were Christians, that they were all right. They could afford not to accept this second invitation that he sent out. They could do that some other time. It was this easy assumption that they were Christians. Our Lord was terrified by that. And that is why he spoke that parable to them about the men making a great supper. But then having spoken it, we are told here that he obviously left the banqueting chamber and proceeded on his journey. And we are told that there went great multitudes with him. And our Lord saw this great crowd following him. And obviously he was disturbed by that. And what disturbed him is perfectly plain and clear. He looks at this crowd following him and he says to himself, Well, these people, this crowd that's following me, is, I am afraid, exactly like the people I've been talking about in my parable. Why are these people following me? Well, they think, obviously, that they're interested in me, and they think that they're in agreement with me, and they think that they're true followers of me. But the question is, are they? So turning, he said to the crowd, listen, if any man come after me, and then, in other words, he lays down, in a tremendous definition, the character of the Christian life. And then he drives it home and reinforces it by those two parables. It's in a sense also in the parable about the salt at the end, but the main thrust is in the other two. The parable of the men going to build a tower and the parable of the king going to make war against another king. But it is vital for us to realize the context in which our Lord made his pronouncement and also spoke the two parables. He does it because he sees this crowd that is following him. He's disturbed about it, he's unhappy about it, and he feels that he must address these people and get the position perfectly plain and clear in their minds before they go any further. So when he has spoken, he ends by saying, Have you got it? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Have you understood, he seems to say? This is a momentous question. Have you really heard it? Have you really understood it? So here, you see, our Lord takes this whole matter uh, one step further. It is the danger of vagueness and indefiniteness in our minds concerning the Christian message concerning our relationship to him. It is the danger, I say, of following him in an unintelligent manner. It is going after him thinking that all is well, but to discover later that all is not well, and that we've really never belonged to him at all. That's what he's dealing with. And obviously I needn't take any of your time in stressing once more the momentous 
all-important, serious character of this message that we are considering together. Very well, what is the teaching? Let me try to put it to you in the form of a number of principles. The first thing that our Lord teaches us here is this, is that Christianity is something that calls upon us to make and to take a choice. If any man come to me, if any man is going to follow me, if any man is going to be a disciple of mine, he can be, you see, or he can't be. Now, here it is, we are confronted, he says, by a choice. We either follow him or else we do not follow him. And we decide which it is going to be. Now, this is something, of course, that is found running right through the whole Bible. It's always a question of choice. Enter in at the straight gate. There's a straight gate, there's a wide one, a broad one, and the similarity with the roads, two types of houses. It's always either or, God or mammon. The whole of this message is always confronting us in this way. There are only two ultimate possibilities. And this message comes to us and calls for a decision, calls upon us to take a choice. But you see, he doesn't leave it at that. Our Lord goes much further because this crowd that was following him, they thought they'd taken the choice and the right one and that everything, our Lord tests the character, the nature of the choice that they've made. So he emphasizes this. Face to face with the Christian message, he says we must take a very deliberate choice. That uh, it's not something impulsive. It's not something that you rush into. It's not something that you do without quite knowing why you do it. He says it's the exact opposite of it. Indeed, he spoke the two parables in order to stress that. Far from being uh, impulsive, he says, this decision must be something that a man considers very deliberately. Look at the terms that he uses. Which of you, he says, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? He says, if a man wants to build a tower, he suddenly gets the idea, I'd like to build a tower. He mustn't rush out straight away and start digging and getting on. No, no, our Lord says he must sit down first and work out a calculation. Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Now there's only one point in that parable, and it is this utter folly of rushing into action before you know exactly what you're doing. You've got to sit down. And you've got to count the cost. You've got to go into the thing carefully. It mustn't be impulsive. Or take it in the case of the second parable. Or what king going to make war against another king? Same again, you see. Sitteth not down first. And consulteth whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an embassage and desireth conditions of peace. Now, you notice the terms. You've got to sit down, you've got to count, you've got to consult, you've got to consider. 
You know, my friends, this is our Lord's teaching about evangelism. This is our Lord's teaching about how you enter the kingdom of God, of how you become his disciple. And you notice that he says, it has got to be a very deliberate choice. But wait a moment, let's look at it again. He says that no man can be his true disciple unless he goes after him with a full realization of what exactly he's doing. Nobody can dispute that. It comes out in everything he said. If any man come unto me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And the two parables. He says you must know exactly what you're doing. And he says the terms are perfectly clear, but you must consider them, and assess them. Which, you see, entitles us to say this. That you never become a Christian with your heart only. Now, there are many people who think that that is what makes us Christians. That we are just an emotional lot of people. That's the jibe that is hurled at us perhaps most frequently. That we've just swallowed what they call this sub-stuff. That we get worked up with our emotional hymn singing and choruses and so on. And that we're just a lot of emotional people. And, well, and that we've become Christians because we haven't got any brains and intellects and we're just, just governed entirely by our hearts. Something purely emotional. Well, there's no doubt that many have thought that they're Christians because of some passing emotion. You can get emotion in private, you can get emotion in meetings. There are hymns and songs that are calculated to make us very emotional. And under their influence, we can act without realizing what we are doing in a purely emotional manner, merely acting from the heart. Our Lord doesn't approve of that. Neither does he approve of our acting, if you like, in a purely psychological manner. There's a great deal of this in the world today. People are influenced in a purely psychological manner. They're in trouble and they want some help and they want some comfort and there are these cults and these other agencies that simply provide them with just a little bit of psychological help they need and they're treated psychologically perhaps with colored lights and crosses and things of that kind and it has some effect. That isn't what our Lord talks about. Neither is he interested in uh, those who follow him merely in terms of their will. There are many who have done this. They decide to go after him because they want to do good or to live a good life or something like that. They don't quite know why they're doing it, but they do it. They feel, well, here's something I can take up and something I must do. And they take a decision of the will, pure and simple. You say to them, well, what's your reason? What's your understanding? They say, I don't know. But they just decide to live this kind of life. Now, our Lord, it seems to me here quite clearly, he is showing his disapproval of acting in any one of those ways on its own. What does he emphasize? Well, isn't it obvious? He emphasizes the mind. Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? You don't draw up a bill of costs, a bill of quantities. With your heart or with your will, you've got to use your mind. You've got to put down your items, you've got to make your calculations, you've got to do your additions and subtractions, you've got to arrive at a final conclusion. 
That's the exercise of the mind and of the understanding. It's a question of calculating. Look here, says our Lord, you're following me, but do you know why you're following me? Have you stopped to consider it? Do you know? Are you just following me because there's a crowd following me? Of course, we all know about that, don't we? If you want a crowd, you start with a little one and you'll have a big one. I remember a man telling me years ago something which quite astounded me at the time. It was during the war and we were in a conference concerned about some evangelistic activities at the end of the war when it came. And there they were talking and then the question came of where we should have the meeting. And a man got up and said, well, he said, there's no question about that. We'll take the Albert Hall. Dear me, said some of us, isn't that a little bit uh, optimistic? Isn't it a little bit too ambitious? And the man smiled at us. He was a man who had a lot of experience in these things. He said, no, no, he said, the Albert Hall is one of the easiest buildings to fill in London. It's much easier to fill the Albert Hall than smaller buildings, he said. Well, why, said somebody to him. Well, he said, the Albert Hall fills itself. If you put up an announcement and say you're going to hold a meeting in the Albert Hall, it'll probably be full, because this is how it works. This is the psychology of it. People say, ah, Albert Hall, well, there's going to be a great crowd there. I must go. And so you get your crowd, because they think that there's going to be a crowd. This is a very interesting psychological point, this. I think this was the thing that was in our Lord's mind. He said, why are these people following me? Do they know? Have some of them joined the crowd simply because there is a crowd? You know, this works conversely. I remember an experience that I had a few times before I came to London when I was still preaching in Wales and sometimes I would be preaching outside my own church in different places and I made a most interesting observation. Whenever I was preaching in a particularly small church, it was never full. The big churches were generally full. The little ones were not. Why not? Well, this is the explanation. These things are of great interest to me. Why wasn't the little church full? Well, I'll tell you why. People said, it's no use going there. You won't be able to get in. So many said that, that the place wasn't full. Now, you see, this is, this is crowd psychology, isn't it? Crowd psychology. And our Lord knew all about it. He knew the danger of the crowd attracting the crowd. He knew the danger of thoughtless people being rather attracted by a man who could down the Pharisees and who could expose them as he'd just been doing in that feast and as he'd done it in the Sermon on the Mount. The people said, This man speaketh with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. And they're always on the side of the rebel, as it were. At least for a while, it's a bit of a novelty. And so they crowd after him. Wait a minute, says our Lord. Do you know why you're following me? And so, you see, he emphasizes the importance of the mind and of the understanding. A man can't be a Christian without knowing why he's a Christian. A Christian is a man who knows what he believes, and he knows why he believes it. He's not just a man who joins the crowd after Christ. He knows why he's there. Make certain of it, says our Lord. Sit down. Stop. Consider. Calculate. Reason. Work it out. Know exactly what you're doing. You can't be my disciple unless you do. In other words, for me to sum up this point, we'll put it like this. The whole personality is involved in discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mind. The heart. And the will. And if any one of them is absent, it's not a true discipleship. 
Very well then, my friends, here it is. We've got to take a choice and we've got to do it with the utmost deliberation. I'm going to be out of this pulpit for a few Sundays. But I'm giving you tonight my main reason for not calling for hurried decisions at the end of each service. We must know what we are doing, my dear friends. God has given men a mind. And a man's mind must be engaged and involved. He must know what he's doing. Sit down. Count the cost. Calculate reason. It's our Lord's own teaching. But come to the second principle. Christianity, I say, calls us to a choice. In the second place, it calls us to the most radical and profound decision and choice that men can ever take. It's a profound, it is a radical choice. What do I mean? Well, you see, that's the very thing that our Lord is saying here in his proposition and in his two parables. This is his main emphasis. He's telling these people, now, you mustn't come after me merely because you've got a general interest in me. That's no good. As I'm saying, there are many who've done that. There are many people who say, oh, I've always been tremendously interested in Christianity. And I like listening to an occasional sermon, and I like reading an occasional... I'm tremendously interested in general interest in Christianity. No good, says our Lord. Or to put it in another way, he says that it's no use going after him if you're merely going to accept some of his teaching. There are people who do that. They say, now, I like that Sermon on the Mount. That's the thing we need. If we could only translate that into Acts of Parliament, England would be put right. Sermon on the Mount. Of course, I'm not interested in all that about the cross and the blood and the death and regeneration. Ah, that's nonsense. But this ethical teaching, that's the thing. And they think they're following Christ. But according to our Lord, they're not. They don't belong to him at all. You can't go after him merely accepting some of his teaching with which you happen to agree. And as long as he's saying what you think, you say, Ah, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. Of course, the rest are. Well, of course, he probably never said it. That that's some interpretation. You see, that's what they, that's what you read their books, you'll find they're always saying that anything in the New Testament that they don't agree with, it isn't authentic. That's the whole basis of your higher criticism. You decide what goes in and what goes out. And of course, it's all in agreement with you, otherwise it isn't authentic. Our Lord says he doesn't accept such followers. Or to put it like this in a little more practical sense, you can't be his disciple if you allow him merely to affect certain aspects of your life only. But reserve all the rest to yourself. There are so many, you see, who allow Christ to influence them on the surface of, the li- of their lives, but not at the center, not in the heart. Oh, yes, they allow him to modify certain parts of their life and their interests and their activities. But no more, he's all on the surface. They keep him where they want him, as it were. But it's only there, certain parts of their life. He doesn't accept such disciples. He's saying it. Or to sum it all up, let me put it like this. 
If you think of the Christian faith, the Christian message, as something that you take out, or something that you add to your life, you know nothing about it. You're outside. You're not his disciple. He won't have that. You can't say, yes, I'm going to take this, and I'm not going to take that. The moment you're in that position, you're not his disciple. Well, what is it? Well, you see, what he asks for is this, a total surrender, a complete surrender. He's got to be supreme and central and controlling the whole of our life. Or we are not his disciples at all. Now, I say he puts this in perfectly plain and explicit teaching. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And on he goes. It's a totalitarian demand. He wants a complete surrender in every respect. He demands an utter submission to himself of the totality of our personality. Nothing less. And he says, I want you to consider this. I want you to know exactly what it means. He says, you know, the fact that you're following me down this road doesn't mean that you really belong to me. You're following me today. Tomorrow you'll say, away with him, crucify him. And the very same crowd did that. Why not? They'd never understood why they were following him. They'd never understood him at all. They thought they did, but they didn't. And here he's trying to teach them. He's trying to forewarn them. He's trying to get them to think and to grasp what he's saying. Here's his whole object. And he's still... This is still his object tonight. What does he ask of us? Well, you see, it comes to this. We've got to accept his teaching exactly as it is. In total. No additions, no subtractions, no modifications. If you're going to be my disciple, he says, you've got to come and you've got to sit at my feet. You've got to listen to me. You've got to accept my teaching. You start by surrendering yourself absolutely. Now, the New Testament is full of this. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, says the great follower of our Lord, Paul, the Apostle Paul, if any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise. You drop everything you know, all you've ever learned, and you listen to him, and he becomes your supreme teacher and leader and guide. His teaching, teaching concerning what? Well, teaching concerning God. You see, people don't accept his teaching concerning God today. Our Lord taught us that God is a God of wrath. He taught us about a God who is a judge. People don't like that. They say that God is only love. Our Lord taught that God is love, but he also taught the other side, and they don't accept that. But you see, they're not his disciples. They talk about Jesus and about Christ, and you'd imagine that they're great disciples, but they deny some of his essential teaching. You've got to accept his teaching about God, as it is. And you've got to accept his teaching about the soul. You've got to listen to him as he says to you tonight, if you've never heard him saying it before, what shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Make a calculation, he says, work it out. 
Consider it. Sit down. Work out that problem. What shall it profit a man? Though he gain the whole world in every respect and lose his own soul. Are thoughts of your soul controlling in your thinking? Do you always remember that you're a living soul? That you've got a never-dying soul within you? Is that ever in the forefront of your thinking? He puts it there, and if you follow him, you've got to accept his teaching. Then he teaches about sin. This thing which is so unpopular today. But our Lord always teaches us about sin. He said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said, except he be born again, men be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why not? Well, because he's such a sinner. And sin isn't merely a matter of action. Sin is a matter of disposition. Sin is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of a man's essential being and constitution. Our Lord taught this, that man is lost and so lost that he can never find himself. That he's so steeped in sin, so rotten, that he can't be improved. He must be born again. That's his teaching. And however much men may preach Jesus and his ethical teaching... If they deny his teaching when he tells them that they're so lost that he had to come from heaven in order to save them and even die on the cross on Calvary's hill, they're not disciples of his. They don't belong to him. And they'll discover that at the end. You see, you've got to accept his teaching. And not only with regard to man and sin, but also, as I say, to the judgment to come. It's our Lord who teaches this. There it was in that parable at the beginning of the two houses House and the rock, house and the sand. The winds began to blow, the rain descended, and the wind blew and beat upon that house and on the other, and it's going to happen to all. What then? Judgment. Do you accept his teaching about life, my friend? Do you accept tonight the teaching that life is but a journey and a pilgrimage? And that we are all moving steadily in the direction of the lost, the size. That's his teaching. Do you believe it? Are you following him? If you don't and accept it all, you don't belong to him. You're not a disciple. And then the teaching about himself and his great and his glorious salvation. The Son of Men, he says, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Is he your only hope tonight? Do you say that you've no other hope except that he has died for you and has given himself, borne your punishment, died your death, buried in your grave, and then rose triumphantly to prove that he'd finished the work? Do you believe it? That's to follow him, to accept his teaching in toto as it is. But you see, we are not only to accept his teaching, we've also got to accept his way of life and his way of living. He makes it perfectly plain and clear as to how we are to live. You cannot serve God and mammon, he says. There are certain things that are incompatible with his life and with holy living and with the life that is well-pleasing in God's sight. You see, he searches even our motives. He says that it's out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and fornications. 
He tells us that the trouble with us is not to be explained by the temptations of the world round and about us so much as that which is in us that makes us respond to them. We mustn't blame the city of London and its evil life if you've gone wrong and gone astray. What is it in you that ever made you susceptible to it and its charms, so-called? That's the thing, he says. And he calls us to a life of holiness and of purity and of sanctity, a life of serving God. He sums it all up, but he says this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. My dear friends, he calls us to a way of life that is exalted and noble and clean and pure and true. And you can't be his disciple unless you follow him in that respect. You say, but I'm a theologian and I accept all these doctrines. All right, my friend, what I'm asking you is this. Are you living them? Are they affecting your conduct and your behavior? Have they transformed you? Are you a regenerate man? Are you now a holy man? And are you following after him, the Son of God? Teaching and life. But wait a minute. He says that we've got to surrender ourselves to him completely and entirely and not only accept his teaching concerning these great truths and concerning his way of life, but he tells us that we've got to do that whatever it may cost us. Now, listen. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters... Yea, and his own life also he cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean by this? Well, let's be clear about this. Well, I'm putting it as a principle when I say that he says that you've got to follow him whatever it may cost you. And of course, the whole point of the two parables was just to drive that home. A man says, I'd like to build a tower. Yes, yes, but can he do it? Has he got the reserves? Count the cost. Likewise, the king with his 10,000 against the 20,000 that are coming. Can he do it? Count the cost. And what he's saying is this. If you are going to be my true disciple, If you are going to be a child of God and spend your eternity in the glory of heaven, you've got to follow me, whatever the cost. Don't misunderstand this statement about hating father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Our Lord is not saying that we've literally got to hate them and we've got to be unnatural. What he is saying is this, that if they try to come between you and him, You've got to hate them for that. And you've got to put them on one side. That's what he means. He comes before our nearest and dearest. Doesn't matter. Nothing is allowed to come before him. Your father and mother may try to stand between you and him. You mustn't let them. They've got to be put on one side. You've metaphorically got to hate them. It doesn't matter, I say, who they are. They mustn't be allowed to come before him in in your life. But remember this, my friend. He adds this. 
Not only father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to put yourself on one side. And everything that is within you that is aggressive and worldly. Everything that wants to hold on to this world of time. Everything that is inimical to him. You've got to put that horrid self aside. Crucify yourself. Indeed, his statement is an all-inclusive one. It's not only loved ones and dear ones. It's not only yourself. It's your possessions also. You see, this is not teaching that if you want to be a Christian, you've got to give all your money away and become penniless and leave your husband or your wife or your children or your family. That's not Christianity, but it does mean this. That he is always first and supreme in our lives. And if it should ever become a choice between him and everything else, we will sacrifice everything else gladly for his dear and blessed name's sake. You've got to follow him whatever the cost. Indeed, he adds in the second parable, you've got to follow him whatever the danger. You see, he puts that first of all in terms of taking up the cross. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me. What's bearing your cross? Well, people rather sentimentally sometimes think that bearing your cross means this, that if you happen to have an infirmity, you put up with it. If you happen to get rheumatism, this is my cross. You say, this is the cross I've got to bear. Or this, that isn't what he's talking about. What he's talking about is this. He says, look here, I've got to bear a cross in a few days. Are you ready? The world is going to reject me and crucify me. Are you ready to come with me and to follow me, even it mean, if it means that they'll reject and crucify you also? You see, these first Christians, they had to face that. In those ancient days, if you said you were a Christian and that Jesus is Lord, the Roman Empire would tell you very well, you persist in saying that and we'll put you into the with the lions in the arena. You'll be killed. And what our Lord is saying is this, you must be ready to die for me. That if it becomes a question of saving your life, for the sake of yourself and your life in this world and your loved ones and your friends, if it's ever that choice, holding to me and death, or saving your life and denying me, you'll never hesitate. You take up your cross. You see the thing so clearly that you say to yourself, Yes, I'll take up my cross. They'll crucify you, let them crucify me. Nothing shall separate me from you and your teaching and your love. Take up your cross. Be ready to die. In other words, it's a totalitarian demand at any cost. And even with the possibility of facing the danger of actual death. Well, now then, there is a second great principle. And that is why I said it is the most radical and profound decision that a man can ever take. It doesn't affect the circumference of life. It affects the very center of life. It affects the whole of my being. It's the thing that's going to control the whole of my existence. He or something else. Very well. I've got to decide deliberately down at that radical depth.
So, having put what's got to be done before you, I now want to close by putting before you the choice, or the terms of the choice by which we are confronted. What does it come to? Well, you see, it comes to something like this. There are only two ways for us to live in this world. There is what I'd call the natural way, the natural life, and the life of following him. What are these? Well, there's no difficulty about defining it. The choice before every man and woman in this congregation is not something abstruse and difficult. It's this. You are either living a life which is determined by yourself and your likes and dislikes and desires, by uh, human relationships, father and mother, friends, companions, the thing to do, the way of the world, the routine of life, these human relationships, and, of course, things, money, goods, possessions, Houses, drink, dancing, television, entertainment. These are the things, these are the things, this is the way of life. And that is what it's determined by. That's one way. But you see, our Lord is very careful to stress here that we don't merely take a casual look at that. That's what the world does, of course. You read the advertisements. You read what the world says about its own life in the books and the journals. You see it advertised on the television. And it seems to be a marvelous life and a thrilling and a most exciting and most interesting life. And people crowd in. This is wonderful, this uh, life. You get it in the great cities in particular. But you notice our Lord says, before you decide finally on that, Shall I suggest one word that you ought to consider? What is his word? Well, his word is, finish, finish. Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it? They that all that behold, behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish Finish. It's a wonderful thing to come to London and start living the life of London or the life of New York or Paris or wherever it is. You start out of this wonderful life. Money, enjoyment, pleasure, drink, wonderful sex. But before you decide on it, my friend, have you considered the finish? Have you considered the end? Have you considered how long you can go on with it and where it's going to lead you and what it's going to do with you? Finish! Or take it as he puts it in the case of this king going to make war against another king if he doesn't sit down first and consult it whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. What is this calculation? Oh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. This life is a warfare. It's a battle. And the forces are being mustered. You are here on one side, and you're going forward. Every day you go forward, you're getting nearer and nearer to an ultimate conflict. What is it? Oh, there's something coming to meet you. There's a great fight coming. What is this? Well, this is that judgment that I was talking about just now. 
that the whole of the Bible teaches and that our Lord taught in a very particular and in a very clear manner. You are setting out on this life, you say, it's marvelous, I get a great kick out of it. It's a marvelous life, this. How glad I am I no longer have to go to Sunday school or to a chapel. I've got a free life, and I'm enjoying it. But my dear friend, how long? Where are you going? Do you see what's coming to meet you? There's another army coming to meet you. What is this army? Well, it's the law of God. It's the righteousness of God. It's the justice of God. It is the holiness of God. And it's coming to meet you. And you've got to meet it. Here's my simple question to you this evening. Have you ever worked out this calculation? What are you going to say at the day of judgment? You've got to come to it. You've got to die. You can't evade it. You can't postpone it even. Our times are in the hands of God. And we've got to meet him in judgment. And there is the judgment and the Ten Commandments and the moral law and the Sermon on the Mount and God in all his glorious holiness. What are you going to do? How can you meet him? Have you ever stopped and sat down to make that calculation? What shall a man render for his soul? What you got to say in extenuation of the life you've lived? God made you in his own image. He meant you to glorify him. He wanted you as a companion. How do you answer him? How do you meet his demands? The armies are about to meet. Are you ready? So you see that our Lord asks you to stop for a moment before you decide on that worldly life that is opposed to God, that life of self and companions and things and possessions. And he asks you to consider the finish, the end, the final reckoning, the ultimate aside. He says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. Broad is the gate and wide is the way. But where does it lead? It leadeth to destruction. Destruction. Oh, my friend, sit down. Don't think emotionally. Don't think in terms of will. Don't think in terms of physical reactions. Consider the end. And the ultimate assessment, the finish. But turn to the other side. I've told you what he demands of you, that he asks you to follow him and to give him a totalitarian allegiance, accept his teaching, follow his way of life, whatever it costs, whatever the danger, even life itself. But someone may say to me, why should I make such a sacrifice for him? Why should I be ready even to regard my nearest and dearest in this light? Why should I be ready to be laughed at as a fool by the world? Why should I forego pleasures that appeal to me and thrill me? Why should I put them all aside and restrain myself and discipline myself and follow him? Why? What right is he to ask this? All right, it's a perfectly fair question. He encourages you to ask that question. 
He doesn't want to force you to a decision. He wants you to sit down and think and use your brains and work it out. And let me give you his answers. Why should we follow him? And the first answer is because he is who he is. Because he is the Son of God. Who regarded it not as something to be clutched onto, to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. My dear friend, you like to mix with great people. If you were given a chance to go to Buckingham Palace tonight, you'd jump at it. Here you were offered the companionship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Listen to the one who's inviting you. He's Son of God and Son of Man. Because he is who he is. And if you want another reason, here it is, consider what he's done for you. He left the courts of heaven and all the bliss and the glory of eternity, he put it on one side. And he made himself of no reputation. This king of glory, this creator of the universe, this brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. He was born as a helpless babe in Bethlehem and put in a manger and lived a life of poverty and of shame, working with his hands as a carpenter. What for? For you! But he didn't stop at that. He began to preach and to teach. And then he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and gave himself up willingly and voluntarily to that cruel death on the cross. Why? Well, that you might be forgiven. He bore your punishment. He went in your place. He bore your transgressions. He was smitten for them. He loved you that he might save you, even by laying down his life for you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. But God commended, commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, he's done that for you. While you hated him, he was dying for you that you might be forgiven and delivered. That's a reason. Do you want another? Oh, here's a glorious reason. Why should I give up all for him? Why should I surrender everything for him? Here's the reason. He is who he is, and I like to look at him and be near him. I consider what he's done for me, but consider where he's leading you. He is leading you through this wilderness that we call this world. He'll lead you through death. He'll lead you to the glory everlasting. Guide me, O oh, thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. And he will. He is leading him to a glory everlasting. Listen to some of his last words before he left this world. 
Let not your heart be troubled. We believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there he may be also. Where is he leading you? He's leading you to God, to heaven, to glory, to bliss, to an eternal inheritance that baffles description. And he will lead you until he gets you there. He has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. These are the reasons, my dear friend, for following him, whatever the cost, whatever the danger. He stands before you and he says, come, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Why? Well, thou art son of God, thou hast died for me, thou art leading me to the glory. Thou wilt be with me until thou dost get me there. Have you seen him? Have you known him? Have you realized who's giving you the invitation? Are you ready to say, wherever he may guide me? No one shall turn me back. My shepherd is beside me and nothing shall I lack. His wisdom never fadeth. His sight is never dim. He knows the way he taketh. And I will walk with him. I don't understand myself. I don't understand life. I'm baffled and bewildered by the immensity of it all. All this atomic power and the mystery and the marvel of life and creation and death and eternity. Who am I? Who are you? Listen. He knows the way he taketh. He has come down from heaven to earth to make it possible for us to walk through this earth and arrive in heaven. He knows the way he taketh. And I will walk with him. My dear friends, there's the choice. There are the two ways. Have you sat down and made the calculation? Have you considered the nature of the life, the end to which it reach, to, to which it leads in both cases? If you've never done so before, do so tonight. Calculate. Consider. Work out the cost. Keep your eye on the end, particularly. And then, having done so, I'm sure you'll be ready in joining me in saying, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee, Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shalt be. Perish every fond ambition, all I have sought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Men may trouble and distress me till but drive me to his breast. Life with trials hard may press me. Heaven will give me sweeter rest. Oh, tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. Oh, twere not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. Take my soul, thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. 
joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. What a father's smile is thine. What a savior died to win thee. Child of heaven, shouldst thou repine? Haste thee on from grace to glory. Armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Swift shall end thy pilgrim's days. Hope. Soon change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. Can you say that to him? Jesus, Son of God, Savior of my soul, Jesus, I deliberately my cross have taken all, if necessary, to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence, my all shalt be. That's what he wants. Those are his true disciples. Count the cost. It may mean despising. It may mean shame. It may mean loss. The world may say, will say that you've gone mad. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Have you counted the cost? Have you considered the finish? Have you considered him who has promised to take you through life and through death and to present you at the end faultless before the presence of his Father's glory with exceeding joy? Oh, men and women don't go after him because they don't know him. They don't realize who he is. Son of man, son of God, beloved Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Pray God the Spirit to give you a glimpse of him. The glory of his person, the wonder of his grace, the triumph of his death, the brilliance of his resurrection. Think of him seated at this moment at the right hand of God. Think of him as he'll come at riding the clouds of heaven to judge the whole universe in righteousness and set up his eternal kingdom. Look at him! And once you see him, you will have no doubt as to what to do. You will say just that, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave. And follow thee. Amen.